The more successful you are, the more problems you deal with and the more challenges you have and the bigger company you have and the bigger business, you, I mean, just stuff goes wrong. And that the key measure to success is how well you deal with the bad news and the problems, not how well you embrace the good news. And that inherently, the more successful people have organizations that are better at anticipating, communicating, learning from, growing from, and dealing with and surviving problems. That's Casey Wasserman, and this is The Rich Roll Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, what's happening? What's going on? How are you? My name is Rich Roll, I am your host, and this is my podcast. Welcome or welcome back. This is the program where I have the good fortune of getting intimate and going long form, usually with some of the world's most intriguing thought leaders and positive change makers all across the globe. Really appreciate you guys tuning in today. Uh, Thank you so much for subscribing to the show on iTunes, for sharing the show with your friends and your colleagues and your family members and your annoying uncle, all that good stuff. And big love to everybody who supports my work through Patreon and by making a habit of using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com. Really, really appreciate that. Uh, Really excited to share my conversation with Casey Wasserman on today's show. Uh, Casey's a really impressive guy. He's a business leader, a civic activist, he's a philanthropist, uh, perhaps most well-known as the founder and CEO of Wasserman, which is one of the largest, most powerful, most successful sports marketing and talent management agencies in the world. Uh, These guys represent a gigantic percentage of the globe's most talented professional Olympic and extreme athletes. Uh, And you also might know Casey uh, by his more recent work as chairman of LA 2024, which is the committee charged with lobbying to bring the 2024 Summer Olympic Games to Los Angeles. Uh, A couple other interesting things about Casey. In 1998, he purchased the Los Angeles Avengers Arena League football team and then went on to become chairman of the entire uh, Arena League uh, of football, and he was only 24 years old. Uh, He's also the grandson of Lou Wasserman, who was one of the most famous Hollywood agents and studio chiefs of all time. This guy was a true visionary, uh, a man I think we can fairly credit as almost single-handedly Uh, conceptualizing and crafting Hollywood as we know it today. Uh, He's a man that meant a great deal to Casey, uh, a mentor that he credits with his success, which is something we get into a bit on the podcast. But first, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, 
the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support, and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So I've known Casey for a couple of years. Each time I connect with him, I'm just so impressed with how he handles himself. He's incredibly grounded uh, and present and I just enjoy his company. And this is a cool exchange about his life, about entrepreneurship, about his success, about balancing priorities, uh, about legacy, and of course, about the Olympics. But it's also a short conversation. (laughs) I think it's the shortest conversation I've ever had on this podcast in the history of the program. Um, It's not my typical deal. Uh, It's not Casey's fault. 
it's a scheduling thing. I only ended up having about 30 to 35 minutes with him. And, you know, it's tough to really do what I do in such a short window. Um, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to sit down with him. So I did my best to get the most out of it. Um, that said, and because the show is so brief in comparison to my other shows, I wanted to mention two things. The first is I'm going to throw up a midweek show on Thursday. It's a panel discussion between me and Marco Borges of 22 Days Nutrition. You might have remembered my full podcast with Marco. It must have been like two years ago. It was a really great one. He's gone on to become uh, a really close friend uh, and mentor to me. I just really uh, dig this guy a lot. Uh, and this is a panel discussion that took place at the Seed Food and Wine Festival in Miami a few months back. So again, I'm going to put that up on Thursday of this week. And... Secondly, I thought I would do something I don't often do, which is share a little fan mail. Uh, I get a lot of mail, a lot of email, a lot of mail in the mail as well, and I can't reply to all of it, uh, but I do read all of it, and I'm super honored by everyone who takes the time to reach out and share their story with me. It's just incredibly meaningful and moving to me. Uh, anyway, I came across this one uh, letter that stood out a little bit, and I thought I'd share it. Uh, I'm going to keep it anonymous because I don't know if this person wants to be identified. But uh, uh, I'll just start with this. Rich, I am a 10-year veteran of the U.S. Army who now owns a fitness studio in blank area. Uh, I have been in a weird place in my life since leaving the military. My wife was pregnant with our first child when she was diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, last year. Since then, we have had our son, and she is undergoing chemo and radiation. In an effort to clean up our life and give her the best chance we can, we have made the switch to eating and living plant-based. I've been a heavy drinker for many a year, many years, and this was my way of dispelling emotions. Uh, I was introduced to your podcast interview with David Goggins by an ultra running friend of mine. And since then, I have never been more clear about who I am or how I want to live my life. Uh, I'll be running my first ultra in May and I plan to run many, many more. I have made the switch to vegan and have never felt, never before found the inner me that I was searching for for so many years. Uh, I've begun writing and trying to tell my story as well. Yesterday's history Tomorrow is a mystery, and today is a gift. And that is why it is called the present. Live in the moment. Live your life right now. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. It helps people more than you know. Uh, and that's the end of the letter. So I have to thank you uh, for sending me that. I just I love that. And truly, this is why I do what I do. Okay, should we talk to Casey? Let's talk to Casey. So uh, thanks so much, man. Appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk to me today. Uh, you got a lot on your plate right now, so I can't imagine how busy you are. You were just downstairs dealing with Olympic stuff? Yep, uh, obviously uh, my other job, I wouldn't call one my day mm -hmm. job or my night job, they both seem to be pretty uh, pretty full-time and pretty concurrent. Um, but obviously my other job is being chairman of LA 2024, which is the United States bid for uh, the 2024 Summer Games that we'd love to bring back to Los Angeles. Yeah, so you let's let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, you just got back from Cotter, right? I did, we were there. It was our first of three presentations to different various groups of the Olympic movement. So this was the uh, uh, 
national Olympic committees from around the world. It was their annual meeting. Mm-hmm. So each of the three bid cities, us, Paris, and Budapest, had 20 minutes. Um, that presentation, much more technical in nature, so much more about you, the details of your plan. Wasn't There was a little bit of touchy-feely. We had some maybe more than others. Uh, given the message, the, the election, or? the election. You know, we had Allison Felix, you know, delivering a message that I don't think people mm-hmm. expected her to deliver. Uh, and our mayor is an incredible spokesperson for our efforts and a great representative of of our bid, our city, and the country. Um, and we we had a good first presentation. The next one's next summer, mm-hmm. uh, and the final ones in, in yep yeah, in Switzerland, and the final ones in Lima, Peru, in September of 2017. And uh-huh. then they'll vote that afternoon. Right. So so Rome dropped out. What happened there? Are you, are you allowed, you're, you're, there's certain things you're not allowed to We're talk about, We're not supposed about, to right? talk about our competitors. Look, Rome dropped out because the mayor of Rome came out very publicly and uh, said it was not something that she supported or that Rome should be supporting as a city, well, as a city it. government, and that makes an Olympic bid almost untenable. Uh-huh. Uh, and we were sad to see him go, a great bid team. The Italian Olympic Committee is really wonderful. Uh, we had a great kind of interaction with them as we've moved around the Olympic world and uh, sad to see them go, but you know now there's three of us. Right. So walk me through a little bit about what it means to be chairman of, of this big bid. I mean, what are the responsibilities that you're shouldering and, and what are the challenges that you have to face in order to you know, lobby this bureaucratic international institution to so sway I, in your favor? I think we have three main responsibilities and as chairman, uh, it's my job to either handle them or direct them or empower people to get them done. The first is to deliver a technical plan and uh, that is a fully compliant fully operationalized, fully mapped out, if you will, plan to host an Olympic Games in 2024. That is every venue, but not just identifying the venue, a lease with every venue. Mm-hmm. It is the Olympic Village, it's a media village, it's the International Broadcast Center, it's security and transportation and safety services and all that it entails to host an Olympic Games for 17 days. Uh, so we have to deliver that technical plan that is in its final form is due in February of 2017. We've delivered two-thirds of it. I mean, they've had it broken up into stages. And in LA, I think we have a truly unique way to present a plan in that we don't have to build any of the venues that are traditionally mm-hmm. sort of the, the white elephants or the burdens around Olympic Games. So with the plan we deliver, we'll have a budget that is certain, a plan that is um, gonna be the plan that we use in 2024. And so our view is no surprises. Mm-hmm. What, what they see is what they will get and it will cost what we tell them it's going to cost. And that's unique in the Olympic world. But that's one responsibility. The second responsibility is to make sure we stay engaged with the city of Los Angeles, the, the Southern California community, California, and to some extent, the, the country. Uh, and that's both at a community level and at a political level. Mm-hmm. We obviously need the community to be supportive. We have the great fortune of having a successful 84 games and there are enough people in Los Angeles who remember or have connectivity to that. Um, that are, are uh, extremely supportive of what we're doing. We have 88% approval rating in LA, and that's really unique in the Olympic movement when we just talked about Rome, where we had a mayor say, right. Rome shouldn't be hosting games. We have the exact opposite. People, right, Garcetti's all about it. Garcetti is, and people in LA not only are excited about, but they embrace the idea of hosting Olympic games, and that's unique. Well, 84 was such a watershed time for the history of Los Angeles as a city, uh, and and it wasn't that it wasn't so long ago that it, that it doesn't reside in the memories of people that have lived here. Correct. For, and if I lived in any other city, I couldn't say that, right? That right. LA is unique in that way, and so we take advantage of of that support um, to really tell our story to the world. And that support is both political, which has been great 
uh, led by the mayor, but the city council, the county supervisors, the, the sort of the mm -hmm. community and organizers, everyone has been really wonderful. And obviously the community in general has been very supportive. So those two things, uh, but important to remember, um, those two things will get us zero votes with the IOC. In the end, there are 94 IOC members who vote. Uh, and as our mayor has described, it's a, it's a two-year campaign with 94 voters. Uh, and our job is, and I believe like any campaign, those 94 voters aren't gonna vote because our technical plan was the best. And they're not gonna vote because LA is their favorite city in the world. They're gonna vote for the people that they know, they like, they trust and respect. And that's my job. And it's a, is it a majority wins? It is situation? a majority. So the way it works is if you don't get a majority, if no city gets a majority on the first round, the low vote getter gets removed and then you vote again. Ah, I got you. Um, and it's unique with three cities. Obviously, the opportunity to win on our first ballots increases. There have been ballots where there have been six cities and it's taken five or six rounds to get to a winner. Uh -huh. Three cities is at most two rounds, obviously. Right. Uh, and so that's our that's our plan. That culminates uh, in September and that's a, will have been a two-year process. Yeah, it's crazy. I saw the, uh, the sort of promotional video that was sort of a, a bird's eye view of kind of walking you through all the different venues and how it's all gonna map out and everything like that. It's amazing that it's so sort of conceptualized to such a large extent this far in <laughs> advance. You know? But I would imagine that plays into the favor of Los Angeles given that, you know, by all accounts, like Sochi and Rio were pretty controversial venues that, you know, didn't exactly go off without issues along the way. Correct, and for us, the fact that we have the infrastructure and the venues is not the reason I think we can win or should win. It's what having those things allows us to focus on mm -hmm. is what's unique. So not having to build a village means for seven years, so from September of 2017 to the summer of 2024, we can focus on what's the experience of an athlete in that village. It's not that most people don't think about what the experience of an athlete in the village is, is that most people don't have either the time or the money to focus on it, because they're too focused on building it. Mm -hmm. You have to build a village that hosts 17,500 athletes for 17 days. UCLA has that many students who move in every September into those dorms every year. Mm -hmm. So that's not our challenge. Right, the so, village exists right across the street. Correct. So we need Westwood a, Village. Correct, so that experience <laughs> has to be extraordinary. We don't have to build uh, a basketball arena. Staples Center is one of the great arenas of the world. So what's the experience of a fan going to that? What's the experience for Olympic athletes who come here or Olympic federations who come here to train? How many training facilities do you need? You need a lot in a city. And LA is such a treasure trove of training facilities. There's tracks everywhere. There's swimming pools everywhere. There's facilities, there's gyms, there's, there's infrastructure here that is truly unique in the world. And then you take what I think is our really our secret weapon, USC and UCLA. No city in the world has two cities, two, two universities of that size and that prowess in athletics with 10 miles from each other. Mm -hmm. That is truly unique. So what is the Achilles heel? Like what's the biggest challenge that you think LA faces? Our challenge is that uh, uh, in, in the past, American bids for an Olympic games have behaved in an arrogant American approach. Uh, and this is an organization that's not receptive to that. Uh, and so our, our challenge is to show people that we're different. Uh, this is a different kind of bid at a different time from a different kind of city. Uh, and we're fortunate enough to have Mayor Garcetti, who's 45, uh, myself, who's 42. We are a young, different face uh, of America. We are a different city. Uh, LA, as, as you know, has probably never been hotter as a city. 
food, fashion, art. I mean, what's going on here is truly maybe unique. It's just forward-facing technology. Too. Yeah. Uh, and so it is, it is the culmination and the combination of where creativity and innovation collide. What, is the, what was the climate uh, in Qatar in the wake of the election? Uh, look, I would imagine that's a, that, that would be a challenge. It was a challenge, uh, to be fair, uh, a lot of questions. Um, and it's not something we avoided. We came out and said, well, first of all, let's be clear. In the United States, Olympic bids aren't dependent on politicians. Uh, we are unique in that way. We have, obviously, we'll have a host city contract with the city of LA, but this is a privately designed, privately funded, and privately managed organization by people who know how to run businesses at that scale. Mm -hmm. This is not a political operation. So while the federal government is important, um, we are not a government entity, and that's different than other Olympic bids in both this race and many races in the past. And that's the difference of the US. And in the past, that's been a negative, and maybe now it could be a positive, mm -hmm. given the issues with politics that you described in, in Rio. I mean, there's, there's, it's complicated. And so we, we had a lot of questions, and, and Allison Felix's message was very clear. You know, don't doubt us. What, what, did you, what did you learn from your experience in Rio? Like, what did you take away from that that's informing the campaign? The, the thing that was most striking to me about Rio is the Olympics are an event that operates on a scale that you can't prepare for. Uh, so the opening ceremonies are on a Friday night, and Saturday morning uh, was something like uh, 5,000 athletes, 30,000 volunteers, 100,000 spectators, and like 10,000 coaches all depart to go to events at the same time that first morning. Mm -hmm. And that is unprecedented in events. And then that happens every day for 17 days. And this, to see the scale of that, because I hadn't been to a summer games in a while, uh, to see the scale of that in person and to think about that scale was amazing. And the other thing that was fun is to be at a games and be a bid city. Everything I went to, from a little cocktail reception to opening ceremonies in between, all I could think about was, okay, in LA, this would be here. <laughs> right. And in LA, we could do this here. Or this is how we could do something different in 2024 in LA. Uh -huh. And that was a fun way to experience the games. Do you feel the the pressure or the legacy of Uberoth and what he did in 84? Because that was, I mean, he really ushered in the era of the profitable Olympics, wasn't it? I think that was the first it, it profitable Olympics It was, Olympics and there's no question uh, for all Olympic hosts and for obviously Olympic hosts in LA, he has set the bar high. Uh, and Is he I'm, still around? He's around, uh, he's a dear friend, he's been a mentor to me in my life mm. for a long time, having nothing to do with the Olympics, and has continued to be so, and a great resource for us to to call on. Uh, he, he has been the first to say, this is your time and your bid, and you're doing a great job, but I'm here if you need me for advice and counsel, and uh -huh. he's been wonderful. That's cool. Yeah. So on a day-to-day -day basis, what do you have to babysit to kind of you know move this thing along? Well, I think between the big hurdles are us, February is the, the stage three deliverable as it's described, so it's the final sort of culmination of our plan. Uh, in April, we have what's called an evaluation commission visit. That's where the IOC sends a dozen IOC members and about a dozen subject matter experts to LA uh -huh. for three days to really- Sniff around. Yeah, it's not a snoop. It's a very open, transparent process, but it's a very deep dive into the specifics of your plan, venues, budget, the whole thing, transportation, all the sort of various pieces. That's a big hurdle. And then from you know from really there on, you're focused on a couple more presentations and engaged with that uh, Olympic family to really get to know them and and understand them and and vice versa. And right. so that's a pretty all-encompassing uh, ten months. Yeah. Well, it's exciting, man. And for you. 
I mean, this goes back to early childhood, right? Like I read that you were you were a torchbearer when you were like 10. There oh, there's I a picture there. right over there. <laughs> I, was, I was a 10 year old. Which, uh, like what segment did you I, run I with I don't remember, don't really. Remember. It was, I knew it was early in the morning. It's the one thing I do remember, but uh -huh. it was 10 years old and I ran with a torch. I still have the torch. Uh, and uh, you know, 84 was, if someone was in LA, it was a magical time in mm -hmm. Los Angeles in 1984. Mm -hmm. Well, best of luck with that, man. Thank you. We're excited. And as we talk about, you know, sort of your past and, and legacy and all of that, I can't help but notice your grandfather's glasses sitting behind you in a in a lucite case peering over your shoulder. Um, so, you know, I'm hoping you're open to talking a little bit about, you know, uh, the impact of him on your life and, and kind of how he acted as a mentor and, and how he kind of infuses the culture that you've built here at Wasserman. So, uh, look, uh, my grandfather was an incredible person, obviously incredibly successful businessman. But the most amazing thing he did in my eyes was uh, my mom is his only child. Uh, and I had no relationship with my dad. And it was clear to him, frankly, much sooner than it was clear to me. And at the age of three, um, me being three, he made the conscious decision to play that role in my life, to be that father figure to me. And, you know, if you think about it, <laughs> He didn't have to do that. Um, he was at the height of his power, the height of his business. And maybe and, explain to people who don't know, kind of. So know, just my grandfather what was the uh, <laughs> chairman and CEO of, of MCA Universal, you know, the company, the Universal Pictures, Universal Studios, MCA Records. You know, one of the first really truly entertainment-driven conglomerates. And he was the CEO of that company and chairman for 63 years. So he ran that company from um, uh, in the 30s till. Um, um, the mid '90s, and you know he was running a global um, entertainment empire. But I think it, I think it's fair to say he really shaped what became modern Hollywood. No question, he was. You know? He is often referred to as the king of Hollywood. He was, you know, at his funeral they called him, you know, Olympus standing on top of Mount Zeus. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I mean Zeus standing on top of Mount Olympus. Sorry, he he was that figure in, in early Hollywood. No question, with obviously some others, but he really shaped the industry in many ways. I mean created the modern package for an actor and a movie and a, and a director and a, you know, so he created a lot of things that exist today and are taken for granted. And, but he made that conscious decision to be my father figure. Uh, and, and that meant a lot in my life. Cause if you think about it, we started, he took me to breakfast every Saturday and Sunday mm -hmm. without fail from the time I was three until a month before he died. It's about 23 years. Uh, he came to every one of my Little League games. He would come to my tennis matches, and that was before iPhones and, you know, connectivity and email. I mean, he would leave his office, drive himself, and on a Thursday night mm -hmm. come to my Little League game and sit in the stands and watch. Mm -hmm. And so I would not be the person I am today nor have had the life I've had if he hadn't made the conscious decision to have that role because obviously as a father now, I understand the value of um, an engaged parent. Right. Uh, and... To me, to make that decision, having no idea who I was, what I was, how it was going to be, good, bad, or ugly, was a really remarkable thing. And he never wavered for one day, not wow. one second for one day. And so he was my mentor. He, in many ways, was my best friend. He was, in many ways, most people think he was my father. I can't tell you how many people say, oh, I used to work for your father. <laughs> I knew your father. And then, and then, look, they, I get it. They mean him. But no one knew, he, no one realized he was my grandfather uh, in many ways. So... It was an incredible thing for me, and 
he was a great storyteller. And so the lessons I took from him were sort of derived from the stories he would tell about his life and his experiences. He wasn't so much, you should do this or do that. It was very specifically not that. It was much more about, you know, his experiences and what I could draw from those. And there isn't a day that goes by, whether it's those glasses mm-hmm. looking over my shoulder or not, um, that I don't think about something he said or tell someone in this company or in a client, uh, one of his sort of, you know, things that made him tick or, or, or lessons he learned. If you could distill down some of those kind of fundamental <laughs> principles or sort of guiding, you know, ideas that he instilled in you, what would you say to that? Well, <clears throat> he was, I, I think one of the great lessons I learned from him was, and I used to think it was the exact opposite, but what I quickly realized as I got older was that the more successful you are, the more problems you deal with and the more challenges you have and the bigger company you have and the bigger business, you, I mean, just stuff goes wrong. And that the key measure to success is how well you deal with the bad news and the problems, not how well you embrace the good news. Mm-hmm. And that inherently, the more successful people have organizations that are better at anticipating, communicating, learning from, growing from, and dealing with and surviving problems. And he was a big believer in that. He used to always say, you know, uh, uh, bad news gets worse, so you better just deal with it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you think about it, it's true, right? I get paid to deal with problems. Good news takes care of itself. And if you think about human nature, whether it's with your kids or your partner or at work, most people's knee-jerk reaction is to stick their head in the sand and hope that bad news goes away. And the truth is it doesn't. Right. And and so that was him. He always, he created a culture at his company, even in our family, that you know you communicate about those problems and that's how you deal with them and fix them. That if you don't communicate and deal with them, they get worse and they can be really damaging. Right, so in terms of like kind of the, how, how things roll downhill from, you know, <laughs> the corner office here to all of your employees, is it sort of, you know, take responsibility for when things go left and just, and solve it quickly? Or what is the, I think the key, kind of what is the culture that you've created The here? culture is that you are not, it's not about uh, being dinged for communicating bad news and problems or weakness, it's about being rewarded and encouraged and supported when you do those things. And that's a real mind shift for an employee. And so as soon as they understand that, then you create a culture where people know each other, they trust each other, they respect each other, and that they know they have their support for each other. It's not a fear-based workforce. Because look, everybody has problems every day. Uh And you have to learn how to deal with it. Right. All right, so now you're sitting uh, on top of this, you know, behemoth uh, <laughs> agency marketing uh, enterprise empire that you've built. You started in 2002, yep. right? And you're now like the largest agency? One largest sports agent in the world, uh-huh. yep. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> like, it is crazy. It's unbelievable. And it's it's very interesting times right now. Things are, are <clears throat> shifting and and moving very quickly. The tectonic plates of, of media and sports as a business seem to be like sand underneath your feet, right? And as such a large enterprise, you know, how are you able to kind of maneuver with that and anticipate what's next? And you know, how does that inform how you work with your clients and the corporate clients that you guys deal with? Yeah, look, I, th- I, I couldn't agree more. It is a really interesting time um, in, the, in, in the world, obviously, but in the media business and sports is a gigantic, if not the biggest part of the media business. So it's, it's a really unique time. Uh, we are in the midst of a significant paradigm shift or several. 
Um, uh, and, and one of the things I think is really important for us when we communicate with clients or, or potential clients is, is a couple of things. One, my name's on the door, I own the business, um, I'm here every day, I'm 42 years old, our interests are absolutely aligned with our clients, and that's important. We have no other interest other than our client's success, uh, and we think that's pretty unique. We have no other driving mechanism. Um, the second thing is the, the scale of our operation, both in breadth and depth in the areas we do operate in, provides us a level of experience and history in dealing with challenges mm -hmm. that we think is very unique and valuable to our clients. And so you take those two things together and the message we really send is, yes, times are changing. Yes, things are different and complicated, but you are represented by someone whose only interest is in your interest and who has the experience and the, and the caliber of people at the company to support you through ups and downs. Mm -hmm. And that's very simple. And, and how does this specific kind of guidance of, uh, of the clients uh, shift when you have like media culture transitioning from being very distribution focused to being more consumer facing, right? And, and with social media and the like, and, and with every athlete having to worry about his or her <laughs> personal brand and you know, how that looks and, and how they're presenting themselves directly to their fan base has to, inf I mean, you're coming from a business that was traditionally like, we negotiate these contracts and we do these endorsement deals. And now it's like this amorphous goo of all these different <laughs> things that you have to kind of take on, right? Yeah, so as a starting point, look, sports has always not only survived, but thrived in paradigm shifts uh, and through the last uh, bunch of decades. And I have no doubt that that will continue. And so uh, sports has always been, um, um, a unique way to engage with a consumer uh, because of its nature of its live. It's an evergreen product. It's pretty resistant to most technological changes or embraces them in, in unique ways. And so I think that is going to continue. Um, what that means is that the revenue that comes in the sport may come from different places, but the revenue that comes in at the top of the mm -hmm. funnel will continue, which means it flows through the system and ultimately players are a, a partial beneficiary of that. Um, as it relates to the way their economics work in their sport. Uh, yes, there are a lot more things for a player to be cognizant of and aware of and concerned about and focused on. And as an agency that is in representative of their interest, it, it's incumbent upon us to have a diversity of people who are connected with those clients, who have a diversity of skills and experience to be able to support them. So in very specific terms, in other words, here's how you deal with Snapchat. Here's Correct. how you social media. Should I be on Instagram or you know all that other all that kind of crazy stuff? No question. Stuff. All that stuff, you know, from a phil philanthropic standpoint, what does it mean to have a philanthropic initiative? How do you engage? What's a good approach? What's a bad approach? How do you measure success? All those issues. There's we have you know a massive legal department to support them um, in contractual negotiations. So we have the ability to support our clients across the board in all those various ways with what we think are best in class service, and that's important. When you're looking to take on a new athlete client, does the social media landscape play into that decision, like beyond just stats on the field or you know performance? Um, it's part of the puzzle, I would say. Um, we're much more focused on, look, we, we want them to be a, uh, the caliber and the character of the person is what's important. Uh, and the, usually those two things inform how they present themselves in things like social media. 
Um, uh, so I always, I'm a believer that it's not an accident the kind of athletes that we represent, and therefore not an accident for the kind of athletes we don't represent. And uh, it's not an indictment of the ones we don't represent, but we're very proud of the athletes we represent, and and we want to represent them to the best of our ability and attract a lot more like them. And if you had to articulate what makes Wasserman different from you know other big sports agency X, Y, or Z, what, you know how do you answer that? I think it goes back to a couple of things. One, again, we we are not driven by short term based on some alter, alternate ownership or economic structure. We are absolutely aligned and there to do what's in our client's best interest, even if it's not in our economic best interest. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a horizon that's much longer term than I think most. Um, and I think we have a level of experience and success with the variety of clients around the world that is unique in the space. Uh, we are the largest soccer agent in the world, the largest basketball agent in the world, the largest action sports agent in the world, the largest women's sports agent in the mm-hmm. world. You go down the list, that level of experience, that breadth of success, that caliber of talent, that all um, um, passes on to the next generation of athletes we represent. Mm-hmm. It's crazy, man. When I look back at your career, it's pretty fascinating to see how you kind of jumped into the sports <laughs> world as a guy who loved sports and was fascinated by the business of sports, but didn't have any experience other than a short stint as an investment banker. That's true. And at age, how old were you, like 24 when yeah. you bought the Avengers? I was 24 when we bought Arena Football Team. and. Uh, as I said, it doesn't matter whether you're 24 or 64, there's no manual and you they just, just got to gave it to you and like, here you go. You had no office, there's Nothing. no infrastructure. Nothing. You had to figure the whole thing out, right? And no greater moment of anxiety than uh, the next day. Uh, it's like 1998, October of 1998. We were awarded an expansion franchise for LA and I woke up the next day and I was like, uh-oh. We have no office, no employees, no coach. A Staples Center wasn't even built yet. Uh, no practice facility, no team name, no tickets, no employees. <laughs> the and team like, wasn't even named. And and it's like, okay, but what do you do? Like, I didn't even mm. know, there's no manual. How did you right? solve that? It was just kind of baby steps. You just kind of, it's you got to put one foot in front of the other and just mm. start moving and, you know, start to talk to people who worked in the sport and the league and you just kind of slowly kind of grind your way through it. And, you know, the one thing you learn uh, that sticks with me today is the one thing you can't buy more of is time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to play a game in April 2000, whether we liked it or not, and whether we were ready or not, and that, that'll that drive you to get a lot of work done. I would imagine that experience, though, you know, I mean, how incredibly valuable to have that and and to know that you could build something like that. So so when it came time to creating this agency, to understand, like, look, I, I did this other thing from nothing. Right? 100%. It was a huge... You know, I like to describe it as an unbelievable way to get my PhD in sports and by making every mistake and learning all the lessons firsthand. Uh, and it didn't matter whether it was an arena football team or a sports agency, it was an entrepreneurial opportunity in the business of sports and it was an incredible opportunity. And why go into the agency business? Why not move, segue over into the NFL? I mean, did that experience make you wanna be an NFL owner more or less? Uh, look, I mean, I love the NFL. The the opportunity for what we do now was really about how can we find something to buy or do where we can prove our value and our ability. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we bought was an action sports agency. It was Teeny, uh, based in Carlsbad. Um, I love the diversity of what I do. And so we bought this little business. 
Uh, it's grown 20-fold uh, since we bought it in 2002. And, and it allowed us to get into the sports business on a different than a franchise business um, and, and grow in lots of ways we sort of imagined and many which we didn't. Uh, what I love about our business, though, is the diversity of it. Running a team is an incredible experience. You are, in many ways, defined by what happens on the field of play. That is, can be both wonderful and torturous. Mm -hmm. um, but the business of running a team is pretty defined and limited. Um, not good or bad, it just is what it is. And I love the diversity of what we do and the flexibility we have when we do it. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's what gets me excited. I, I love the team ownership and maybe one day if I sold this business, maybe what I'd go do is buy a team and do something uh, that I did before, but for I, now, I, I, could, I, could see that I couldn't imagine doing anything else and I love what I do. Uh -huh. Well, it's cool because you know, in addition and beyond the athletes that you represent, you are working with all kinds of crazy, you know, Fortune 500 yeah. corporate clients. You're dealing with naming rights on buildings. You're involved in events. Like it's across the board, and it transcends sport too. Like you were doing stuff with like London Fashion Week and yeah. things that have nothing to do with you know football or basketball yeah, or golf. Yeah, and, and that's again goes back to the sort of opportunity set and the diversity. So working with brands. Um, sort of across their strategic marketing initiatives. That's not specific to sports, that's mm -hmm. across strategic marketing. Oftentimes our relationship will start in sports, but it quickly moves to music and fashion and film and entertainment and television. Uh, and the brands we're fortunate enough to work with are, are incredible and gives us a great line of sight into the business, the way brands are thinking about connecting with consumers, talking about their products, leveraging culture to tell that story. Uh, and it puts us in a really interesting place mm -hmm. in, the, in the ecosystem. Cool. I know you got to go here in a couple of minutes, but I, I, a couple quick questions, yeah. if you'll indulge me. Uh, with with this transition in how we're consuming content and sports in particular, you know, where do you see uh, where do you see this going five, ten years from now? I mean, when you can when you can stream an NFL game on Thursday night on Twitter and everything's moving to the phone. And with the exception of the Super Bowl, if, if you're watching a game on television, every time a commercial comes on, you're face planted in the phone, <laughs> trying to see what's going on that you're missing or, or engaging in the conversation that's happening around the event that you're watching. Where is this heading that maybe you can see that we can't see? Well, look, I think highly produced, incredibly presented on beautiful products, uh, sports, isn't gonna change. The Super Bowl will look much better, no matter what, on your 60-inch flat screen in your living room than it will on your phone. Um, but the ability to connect with five billion people around the world who are gonna have smartphones in their hands, and what does that mean? Does it mean they're watching a whole game or does it mean they're watching highlights? Does it mean that's how they buy their tickets and get excited? Does it mean that's how they manage their interactions with the team, that they're playing fantasy sports, that they're buying a product, that they're selling product, whatever it is, um, I think the, the sort of smartphone will be an important part of the relationship a fan has with its team or an athlete. Um, but I think in many ways, sitting down and watching a game in its pure form is gonna be incredible. Doesn't mean that a phone may not provide uh, secondary information, augmented reality, artificial intelligence around that experience. I don't think the experience of watching a game, whether it's in person uh, or on TV, in its sort of passive form is gonna change. I think what those devices can do to, to complement that mm -hmm. is gonna change dramatically. And I think when you're away from that screen or you're away from that arena, your ability to connect is gonna be significantly enhanced by that device. 
it's going to be interesting to watch it play out. It's certainly exciting. <laughs> I watch with my kids. Their experience of engaging with content is dramatically different than mine. I can tell you that. Oh, there's no question about it. <laughs> and, and a zero tolerance policy for being sold anything. No question. You know? No question. Uh, I think that's a, a very good point. Yeah. So, all right, last thing before I let you go. Yeah. Uh, when you look when you look over the course of, of, of your career, you know, if you had to distill down like what you attribute your arc of success to, you know, beyond the legacy of your grandfather. Yeah. I mean, is there something distinctive or, or, or unique about whether it's your vision or your management style that you can kind of put a tack in and say, this is what got me here? Um, <clears throat> I, look, I, I don't think, I don't think success happens in a moment. I think success happens over a long period of time and that you don't realize you're successful or that a something is successful until a moment in time, and then it feels like it happened in a moment. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, I'm a believer that success happens over a long period of time. And for success to happen over a long period of time, a few things have to happen. Uh, I think you have to have staying power, underrated. I think you have to be uh, relentlessly consistent, which is underrated. Both of which your grandfather would work <laughs> No question. I think <laughs> you have to be able uh, to create a culture that allows your employees to succeed. Uh, and I think you have to be able to manage and survive and deal with and grow from problems and bad news. And if you can do those things, you will, over a long period of time, make more steps forward than you make backwards. And when you look back, you'll look not quite know how you got mm -hmm. there, but you'll wake up. So today in 2016, we're a company with 700 employees. When I started in 2002, there were two of us. If you told me that in 14 years you'd have 700 employees and do the revenue you do and touching the kind of clients you touch, I would have said there's no way and I couldn't even tell you how you could get there. Mm -hmm. right. And yet, I couldn't look back and point to any one moment that, that created this opportunity. It was the accumulation of a lot of things, both successful and not successful, that allowed us to be here today. And so I'm a big believer that staying consistent over a long period of time is ultimately the greatest way to prove success. Brick by brick. Brick by brick. Patience, persistence, <laughs> old school. Like training, my friend, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly, man. exactly. All right, well, good talking to you, man. Thank right. you. I appreciate the time and uh, wish you all the best. Thanks, man. Peace. Lance. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation, a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Short but sweet, right? It was good. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I really like Casey. Hopefully I can cajole him into coming back on the podcast at some future point, and maybe we can delve into matters a little bit more deeply. Uh, once again, I'll be back on Thursday with a second episode this week, a panel discussion between me and Marco Borges from the Seed Festival in Miami a couple months back. And until then, make a point, please, of checking out the show notes on the episode page at richworld.com. Got lots of links and resources from today's conversation with Casey to take your infotainment, your uh, education beyond the earbuds. Uh, thank you for sharing the show with your friends and on social media. Thank you for leaving a review on iTunes. If you haven't done so already, please take a minute to do that. It really helps us out a lot. And don't forget to click that subscribe button uh, if you haven't done so already. And like I said last week, don't be shy. Grab your friend's iPhone or whatever kind of phone they have. Uh, and when they're not looking, subscribe them to the show. It's a sneaky little way <laughs> of expanding the reach of what I'm doing. Uh, whatever. You don't have to do that. Uh, if you guys would be into, if you would like to receive a weekly email from me, uh, I send one out every Thursday. It's called Roll Call. Totally free and no spam. It's just like five or six uh, helpful things that I've come across over the course of the week. Usually the book that I'm reading, uh, an article or two that I came across that I thought was interesting, a podcast I'm listening to, uh, you know, a YouTube video, I saw a documentary, you know, all just kinds of interesting things um, that I just wanna share. Sometimes I, these are things that end up on my Facebook page or on social media, but more often than not, they don't. Uh, so, you know, if you're into it, you can subscribe to that on my website. I'm never going to spam you. There's no affiliate links in this. It's, I'm not trying to make any money or anything like that. I'm really just trying to cultivate a little bit of community outside of the podcast around the ideas and the themes that come up in the course uh, and scope of the show. Uh, for all your plant power merch and swag needs, don't forget to go to richroll.com for that as well. We also have signed copies of Finding Ultra and the Plant Power Way. We got t-shirts, we got tech tees, all kinds of cool stuff. Uh, big love to everybody who helped put on the show today, Jason Camiello for audio engineering and production. And also, he's the guy during my Facebook Lives who uh, types out all the URLs and the links to stuff that comes up uh, in the course of uh, those monologues. Uh, also, Sean Patterson for all his help on graphics and for putting together the roll call email and the podcast email blast that goes out every week. Chris Swan for additional production assistance, for compiling the show notes, for helping you know create the web page for each week's show. He does a tremendous amount of work on the program, so thank you for that. And theme music by Anna Lemma. Thanks for the love, you guys. See you back here in a couple days. Peace. Plants. Yeah.